One of the things we're going to look at tonight is it's, it's easy to say one thing about Jesus, but sometimes your life reveals, I, I don't know if I really believe what I'm saying I believe. Um, but sort of to set our context, remember last time we were talking about what's been called the great de-churching and that 40 million people have left the church in the last 25 years, uh, more than came to know Christ in the first great awakening, the second great awakening, and all the Billy Graham crusades combined. And, uh, and, and, and it's a crisis, and it poses an urgent uh, question facing uh, any American Christian who wants to embody faithfulness. And here's the way one writer put it. What do we do when we realize that the forms of Christianity we inherited are either insufficient for or opposed to the Christian mission to which we're called? are either insufficient for or opposed to. What do you do? And we started looking at that question a little bit last time with this image of a bicycle, suggesting you know, that we need a fuller, more comprehensive vision of what Jesus is calling us into. Um, and we said you know, the front tire of that bicycle, the leading edge, is what the Bible calls uh, the gospel of grace. And we said to a, to a culture uh, steeped in performance and achievement like ours, we can't hear uh, the message of grace enough. It, and one way to know that you're really hearing it is when you really hear it, it's always disruptive. It's always threatening to scorekeepers. And I'm a scorekeeper. If you're a scorekeeper, grace is very threatening. Um, <clears throat> that's, uh, that's the front tire. The back tire of that bicycle uh, which always follows any authentic encounter with Jesus is what the Bible calls the gospel of the kingdom, the call of Jesus, follow me into a, into a whole new life, a whole new way of being human. And uh, to a culture uh, steeped in individualism and that has become uh, so used to comfort uh, that we get indignant at what most of the world uh, considers just daily life. Uh, we can't hear the challenge of following Jesus uh, often enough either. And it too, when we hear it, will always be threatening. And, you know, here is this man, our, our Lord, who on the one hand uh, flipped over the tables, <laughs> and the religious leaders were so incensed uh, they wanted to kill him. You know, we often talk about, we often ask, why did Jesus have to die? But maybe a better question is, why did they want to kill him? Uh, but on the other hand, uh, he had an open table. Here was the man who welcomed the outcast of his day, and they, they felt welcomed at his table. So how do we hold these images of Jesus together? Or put uh, most simply, how do we hold together the grace of the gospel and the cost of discipleship? in a way that enhances both without diluting either. And I think there are few places in the Bible that address this question more directly than these little uh, parables uh, that we're going to look at tonight from Matthew 13. i put these on your sheet. Um, you may have read these many times, but maybe, maybe there's something new for us tonight. Uh, Matthew 13, verse 44. Kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered it up. Then in his joy, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. 
verse 45, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Um, the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, what's it like? Jesus says, it's like this. Um, man is passing through a field when he stumbles by surprise. Uh, they didn't have banks. So in those days, when you wanted to protect your, your valuables, one of the ways uh, was you, they didn't have locks on their doors either. You buried your valuables in a field. Uh, but life was treacherous. And uh, if, if you died, uh, your secret of where your treasure was buried would die with you. And <clears throat> so... Uh, you can imagine uh, a stranger's excitement stumbling through a field and, you know, what's this? And his strategy was simple. Uh, I'll rebury the treasure. Um, and since he had no right to it while it was someone else's land, he said, you know, I'm going to go off, I'm going to liquidate all my assets, and I'm going to buy this land so I can get this treasure that's buried here legally. Um, and the second parable... Uh, you should know that pearls were to that society what diamonds are to ours, and this is a pearl merchant. So he knows exactly what he's looking for, this pearl merchant, and he knows when he's found it. Uh, you know, at last, this one pearl of, of great value. And he too, quote, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this. Now let's just think about these two men for a, a moment. Where, where are they similar and where are they, <clears throat> where are they different? Well, there's an important difference between the two men in that one stumbles upon the treasure quite accidentally and the other, you could say, is a, a diligent seeker, right? He's a pearl merchant. He knows what he's looking for. And <clears throat> so it is with the gospel. Uh, some come upon it quite accidentally, not, not even looking for it. Uh, one of the most famous uh, conversions in history was of the 19th century preacher, Dave, your friend, Charles Spurgeon. Um, do you know his conversion story? He was a 15-year-old boy. You know it? I, I did. But I okay. <laughs> well, he set off one New Year's morning uh, for church, uh, but there was such a blizzard that he couldn't get to the church he normally attended. And he wrote, when I, could get no, when I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive chapel only to discover the preacher had himself been detained by the inclement weather and in his stead a layman had been brought forward to conduct the service with a congregation of about 15 people. The man, said Spurgeon, was really stupid. I'm quoting him. He's... <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the layperson they put forward uh, was not clever. Uh, and his text that day was, Look unto me and be saved. And he kept repeating it, Spurgeon said, because evidently he had nothing else to say. Look unto me and be saved. But something about uh, the young uh, man caught the impromptu preacher's eye. and He said, Young man, you look very miserable. <laughs> but I want to tell you, you will always be miserable unless you turn and give your life to Jesus. And there in that chapel of 15 people, the, the layman said, Look, 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 look unto Jesus. And, uh, and he kept repeating it. And uh, there in that tiny little chapel, um, Spurgeon said, uh, He asked me to look, and I did. And, 
and in that moment, I can't explain it, but the cloud was gone and the darkness rolled away. And in that moment, I saw the sun, said this brilliant young man. And I love that story for a lot of reasons. Not only was one of the history's greatest preachers was converted by one of history's worst. It's just such a parable of what the Bible calls the foolishness of preaching. Um, uh, it's just such a wonderful picture that it's always God's business. But also that, you know, there was a snowstorm and they had to take a detour and that God is at work through the seemingly uh, mundane circumstances of our lives. And that's how it happened for Spurgeon and that's how it happens uh, for some of us. You weren't even looking for it, uh, but once you saw it, you know, that, that's how you know you've seen it. You can't unsee it. And, uh, and everything changes. Uh, for others, though, um, more my story, coming to trust Christ in Christ comes after a, a diligent search. Sounds like what your daughter is on. Um, you know, my, my story was uh, probably a pretty common one uh, growing up around the church, but pretty quickly disillusioned um, by what I saw as its shallowness, its hypocrisy, uh, wanting really nothing to do with the church, but not really giving up on the quest. And one of my favorite writers, uh, G.K. Chesterton, um, famously put it this way, If I found a key on the road and discovered it fit and opened a particular lock in my house, I assume that most likely that key was made by the lockmaker. And if I find a set of teachings such as the Bible set out in a pre-modern oriental society, that has proven itself with such universal validity that it has fascinated and satisfied millions of people in every century, including the best minds in history and the simplest hearts, that it has made itself at home in virtually every culture and inspired masterpieces of beauty in every field of art. Such teachings obviously fit the lock of every human soul in so many times in so many places. Are these likely to be the work of a deceiver or a fool? Or in fact, is it more likely that they were designed by the heart maker? <clears throat> and, uh, I mean, Chesterton put it better than I ever could, but it was through writers like Chesterton and another writer named Walker Percy, um, another writer named John Stott, who were, talked about the gospel in ways I just never heard in church. I, I never heard a preacher talk like this. I'd never, I'd never heard the gospel put this way. Um, and, and the key seemed to fit. Um, the oddest and most accurate account, accounting of human psychology ever assembled <laughs> is how one writer, uh, recent writer described the Bible. And, and, and that's how I felt. Like, why does this make sense? It shouldn't, this is crazy, but it makes sense. And it seems to answer my question. And as in Jesus' story, different people come to know God in different ways. But I want you to notice, on the other hand, the two men share some things in common, don't they, in Jesus' parables. Both of them apprehend the value of the treasure. They apprehend the value of the treasure. And that's not a given, right? You can grow up around church, as Spurgeon did, uh, and not see... Um, the beauty of the greatness of what's being offered. But these men in Jesus' uh, parables, they see the, the value. And both of them decide they must have it no matter the cost. And both of them, quote, sell all they have, all they have to acquire it. 
Notice Jesus goes out of His way to repeat the point. Each sells all that he has. This doesn't just mean the kingdom of God is more important to them than anything else, but it's more important to them than everything else combined. All that he has. And thus far, the point of the parable seems clear enough, that the kingdom of God is so valuable, so worthy, so good, that it's, it's, it's worth any cost. And that seems pretty clear. One of my mentors is a man named Joe, who's recently retired in his late 70s. He's been a pastor for many decades. Uh, but he said uh, to me a few years ago, there was a remark made uh, to him 30 years into his ministry that shook him to his core. He was in India on, on a missions trip, and uh, one of the leaders of the church in India said something to him about the differences he perceived between the church in the East and the West. And here's what the man said as best as Joe could remember it. You in the West assume that if you know something, then you've done it. That knowing is equivalent to doing. But we in the East understand that knowing is not the same thing as doing. That just because you understand something doesn't mean you believe it. And my mentor said, you know, in his 50s, 30 years into his ministry, that that hit him really hard. Um, the assumption, um, our assumption that information is transformational or, or that insight is the same as understanding. Uh, but I'd like to suggest that maybe the, his teacher was mistaken in calling this a uniquely Eastern perspective when in fact um, this man could have been paraphrasing uh, the man whom most consider America's greatest theologian, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, because listen to how Edwards puts it in his most important book, Religious Affections. Edwards writes, There is a twofold understanding or knowledge of good that God has made the mind of man capable of. The first, which is merely speculative or notional. The other, that which consists in the sense of the heart, as when there is a sense of the beauty, amiableness, or sweetness of a thing. And then he explains what he's talking about. There is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of the honey's sweetness. When the heart is sensible of the beauty and amiableness of a thing, it necessarily feels pleasure in its apprehension, which is a far different thing from having a rational opinion that this thing is excellent. Now, he's in his 18th century way is saying... You know, it's one thing to know, but it's another thing to know. You, you know honey is sweet, but Edward says, but have you tasted it? Have you tasted it? Um, knowing in the Bible is about tasting. It's about tasting. It's what uh, one writer called personal knowledge. Uh, so it's worth asking, when you say you know Jesus, and, and you believe that you know Jesus... Um, but have you apprehended his beauty and his amiableness and his sweetness? Um, in, in terms of Jesus' parable, you may say you value Jesus above all, but have we apprehended the value of what Jesus is offering us when he offers us life in the kingdom? Uh, and I think given the economic context of his parable, I don't think Jesus intends this to be a theoretical question. It's a bottom-line question for bottom-line people. Um, 
So in that spirit here, just very quickly, some bottom line test. Um, have, you, have you apprehended the, the sweetness and beauty of Jesus? Um, <clears throat> one is you know, how you allocate your resources. In the parable, it's a business transaction. Each man spends all that he has to gain that which is more valuable. And each alters his priorities for the sake of what he's found. It's the same point Adam Smith makes uh, in The Wealth of Nations. Uh, that ground make, groundbreaking study that's led to our free enterprise capitalist system, but it was based upon a simple premise that we will pursue that which we value, that our economic decisions will be dictated by what we deem a good investment. Um, and that was a revolutionary idea, but the premise is not any different from what Jesus is getting at here, what He meant when He said, where your treasure is, there will be your heart. If you want to know what you really value, um, look where your greatest resources, your time, your money, your attention, where they flow. And do those resources reflect that the kingdom is that which you most value? Not just more than anything, remember, but more than everything combined. And uh, if, if that offends you, you know, here's another preacher talking about money, then I mean no disrespect, but I'm not talking to you, because if it offends you, it means you're not yet in a place uh, to consider the value of the kingdom of God. So, like Adam Smith taught, no one should expect you'd be interested in investing in it. Uh, but I'm talking to those of us who profess to know Christ. And just asking the question of the parable, is the kingdom of God worth more to us than anything else? Second test, what enthralls you? What enthralls you? Isn't that a great word, enthrall? comes from the noun thrall. We don't use that today. But a thrall is a slave, a bondservant. To be thralled is to be held captive by, to be captivated. It's where our word enthrall comes from. I'm enthralled. I'm held, spellbound. And if you've ever been in love, you know what I'm talking about. Um, that's how you know you're enthralled. <laughs> no, no price is too high. No sacrifices out of the question. And uh, I thought it was a slave. Uh, <laughs> well. Think of all the wonderful uh, love songs that you may be used to sing to one another. Um, but uh, anybody know the uh, uh, group Bread? Yes. Yeah. So you remember that song, um, I Would Give Anything I Own, Give Up My Life, My Heart, My Home. I would give everything I own just to have you. I'm at Schmaltzy, but that's, that's Matthew 13, right? 14, uh, 44 through 46. I would give anything I own just to have you. I'd give everything I own. And we bear with people singing those songs because we know they are enthralled. And that's what the story asks of us. Does the life Jesus offers you, does, it, does Jesus enthrall you? Or in Edward's terms, do you have a sense of Jesus' beauty and His sweetness? I would give everything I own, give up my life, my heart, my home just to have you. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. Um, I'll tell you how you know, speaking of songs, does Jesus make your heart sing? Because <laughs> something makes you sing. You're enthralled by something. Uh, you're a thrall to it. A slave. 
is that Jesus? You know, what, what makes you sing? And the th- third test, what if you lost it would make your life no longer worth living? What if you lost it would make your life no longer worth living? Um, how disappointed we become when we lose what we treasure reveals to us like nothing else what we most treasure. Um, you know, I used to live in L.A. In the span of one week, I met two young people, both professing Christians, who had, had their hearts broken. One had an engagement called off after years of waiting to be married, and the other uh, had finally decided uh, to leave L.A. after years of trying to be an actor, but had resigned herself that her dream was never going to come to fruition. And both were devastated. But only one of them was inconsolable. Only one was bereft. Uh, because her treasure of, of being an actor, what she'd set her heart on, was, was lost. Uh, even though she said she professed to follow Jesus, what she was really living for got exposed when her dreams were dashed. Uh, the other was also grieving, you know, wanting a family. This is a good desire, uh, but she had this abiding trust that God must have another calling for her life. You know, her life had been rocked, but the ground was still intact. And, you know, these are searching tests, aren't they? How do you allocate your resources? What enthralls you? What the fear of losing it um, would make life no longer worth living? Um, and if we're honest, maybe some of us might admit, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, rather than Jesus being the most valuable thing in our life, maybe it's easy for our faith to become just a part, a valued part, mind you, but not, not, not the pearl, not the treasure hidden in a field. That's one reason I love working with young people is because unlike adults, uh, students or young people uh, are brave enough to admit this fear. Rather than asking, is Jesus worth more than everything else, they will more frequently ask, what's the least I have to give up and still call myself a Christian? Uh, And I appreciate the question. Uh, Like, yes, Jesus, but what if He asked me to go to Africa? Yes, Jesus, but, you know, I want my life. And I can work with that kind of honesty. Because they're revealing, in terms of our parable, they still haven't apprehended the beauty and value uh, and amiableness of Jesus. They still don't believe that Jesus wants their deepest goodness and understands it more than they even know. Um, So you know what opportunity cost is. Opportunity cost is the cost of making an investment. It's the cost of a choice. If I say yes to this, what am I saying no to? Opportunity cost represents the potential benefits that an investor misses out on when choosing one option over another. If I choose option A, if I choose Jesus, then what am I missing out on in option B? That's the opportunity cost. And that's what those young students who are asking that question, that's what they're wrestling with, the opportunity cost. What am I going to have to lose? And I'm not sure I want to do that. And... You know, maybe for us who are no longer students, how how do we know that we've apprehended the value of what Jesus is offering us? Well, I think we can apply that idea of opportunity cost to our parables. Dallas Wellard puts it this way. He says, Do you think the businessman who found the pearl was sweating over the cost? 
What about the one who found the treasure hidden in the field? Of course not. The only thing these people were sweating about was whether they would get the deal. And Willard says, this is the soul of a disciple. You know, he turns how we normally talk about discipleship on its head, doesn't he? We normally talk about the cost of discipleship, what we have to give up to follow Jesus. And he's saying, but if we truly understood who Jesus is and what He's offering us, then what we'd more rather talk about is the cost of non-discipleship. The cost of non-discipleship. What life am I going to lose if I don't follow Jesus with all of my heart, mind, and soul, no matter where He calls me? These little parables clear enough on the surface, um, <clears throat> but there are a lot of people sitting in a lot of churches who won't admit they don't really trust what Jesus is telling us here in these little stories. That if we apprehend Him and the value of the life He's offering, then we will know that He's worth more than anything He might ever ask of us. And He intends for us a deeper happiness than we could ever imagine for ourselves. I mean, might it be uh, so many who profess, but when it comes down to what we treasure or what enthralls us, that we don't really believe Jesus is worth not just more than anything, but more than everything. That if we're honest, there are other things that enthrall our hearts. And I think if we're honest enough to admit that, then we might well ask, well, what have we been missing? And these parables challenge us to consider the opportunity cost of not selling out for Jesus. And Jesus is challenging us, as long as you think anything is more important, more valuable to you than me or following my words, you can't learn from me. It could be we've never experienced the beauty of knowing Christ. We've heard about the honey, but have we tasted how sweet it is? Others we may have tasted, but the, the, the savor is gone from the Savior. Um, you remember maybe when you were younger you felt that way, but today calls like that, if you're honest, they just make, make you feel tired. What might we be missing from this invitation of Jesus? Um, I, to this point, bypassed a critical phrase in our passage. If you look at verse 44, Jesus says that when the first man found the treasure that when he saw it in his joy. And there are certain uh, stripes of the church that like to underline that line. In his joy, he goes off and sells all that he has. The word joy is not mentioned verbatim of the pearl merchant, but certainly the sentiment is there. That for both parties, it's joy. It's joy that motivates their decision. And it's a hard word to define, but most of us have a sense of what it means. Uh, when you're experiencing it, no one needs to tell you. It's, it's that settled satisfaction that exceeds your circumstances. It's, it's, uh, it's contentment plus. That's joy. Uh, it's what Spurgeon felt in that primitive chapel. It's what Chesterton was talking about when he says you discover the key that unlocks your life. It's what Edwards was alluding to with that sense of beauty that enthralls your heart. And in the parables, where does the joy come from? Well, it comes from seeing, comes from apprehending. Look, look, the preacher said to Spurgeon. And we remember the old hymn, Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in His wonderful face. 
And if you see Jesus and the beauty of who He is and what He offers us, and you know that it's not just that we uh, sing to Him, but the Bible dares to say that He sings over us. And when you know that He sings over us, and that compels us to want to sing to Him. But here's the secret. Here's a little secret in these parables that I, I wager many of us miss. I certainly did. Uh, one of my favorite teachers, Dale Bruner, pointed this out, and I confess, as many times as I read these parables, I'd never seen this. He says, in Jesus' parables, please note, joy enables the selling, but only the selling enables the possession. And I submit to you that is a life-changing thought. Joy enables the selling, but only the selling enables the possession. That, I believe, is a profound observation. Um, I'm not saying you have to sell all that you have. I'm not even saying you have to be willing to, because really, how would you know? Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying there's a knowledge, there's a certain knowledge of God that can only come from obeying God. There's a certain knowledge of God that can only come from trusting God, especially when we don't understand. And the order is vital. First the treasure, then in His joy the selling. Joy enables the selling, but only the selling enables the possession. Both must be said. Few, few places in the Bible spell out the dynamics of the kingdom as well as these two little parables. Like the bicycle, grace, then demand, and put them in their proper order. First the jewels, then the selling. But without the selling, there is no possession of the jewels. What are you holding back? Maybe we're not enthralled by Jesus because Jesus is not yet... Uh, what is more valuable to us than anything or anyone. Uh, if you're thinking, I believe, I believe that Jesus is enough, but God help me, my heart is still enthralled to other things. Well, grace to us, our hearts do become enthralled uh, to what one poet called our earthly schemes of joy. So how might we, how might we come to apprehend that Jesus is better? Jesus is better, not just than anything, but than everything. Well, most likely, it's, it's going to come through disappointment and failure and suffering and loss. <laughs> if we won't release, if we won't sell, selling enables the possession. If we won't sell what we're clinging to, it might have to be ripped out of our hands, most, most likely with our finger, finger claw marks on it. Uh, or... It might come through getting what we always wanted and realizing this just isn't enough. But the parables do ask us if we will ever come to say, in another famous passage with the Apostle Paul, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Um, I can't prove it to you that he had Jesus' parables in mind, but it's the same idea, isn't it? That's, that's the joy. He's counting the cost. I count everything as loss, but for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, Paul goes on to say. He's keenly aware of the opportunity cost, but he says, I count them as rubbish. I count them as rubbish in order that I may, and here's the pearl, in order that I may gain Christ. 
But listen to how Paul himself says that he got there. This is Philippians 3, verse 10. I want to know Christ, yes, and the power of His resurrection, yes, but he continues, and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. That that's how we come to know the pearl, how valuable He is through sharing in His sufferings. That there's a gift for us in that, that we might uh, let go of the things we're holding on to. They're keeping us from apprehending the value. Um, these little parables show us uh, the joy, the joy in knowing the gospel, because the gospel of grace tells us there was another man who went looking for a treasure that was lost. That's us, who in his joy, the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And He gave uh, not just His possessions, uh, but He gave all He had. For you were bought with a price, First Peter 1 says, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. He gave all He had. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, that you by His poverty might become rich. We never, get, we never get beyond that uh, primitive preacher's calling to look, look, look at Jesus. And maybe as you sung hundreds of times, Jesus paid it all, and you know the next line. And all to Him I owe. And when you say that, that is a person who is enthralled. You, be, you become a person. You want to know who I am? I'm a man enthralled by the grace of God. You're enthralled by it. But only the selling enables the possession. You say, how does that work? Well, the more we trust Him, the more we start to apprehend the cost of not following Jesus and His will for our lives. Because if we know the real Jesus, we can't help but be enthralled by Him. We aren't worried about the cost, <clears throat> but only what we'd be missing out on by not obeying Him in this matter. Uh, by not trusting Him in whatever He's asking you to trust Him in now. His grace uh, compels us to follow Him, but the more we follow Him, the more we value His grace. The more we see our need of it, like fuel. And that, that's how it is in life with God. The more we taste, the more we want. So I'm going to close one of my uh, writers I, I really like, uh, 15th century Italian mystic, um, Catherine of Siena. You know, in the Catholic Church, when they want to especially say, this is one of the most brilliant people we've got, they call him a doctor of the church. And uh, Thomas Aquinas was a doctor. Bernard of Clairvaux was a doctor. But Catherine of Siena was a doctor. Okay, they're like, she's one of, she's one of the, our best. And uh, she had this little <clears throat> prayer, and uh, so what, I'm gonna, what, what I want to close with. Because uh, I think it captures the dynamic of Jesus' parables for us. She writes, You, eternal Trinity, are a deep sea. And the more I enter you, the more I discover. And the more I discover, the more I seek you. You are insatiable. You in whose depths the soul is sated, yet remains always hungry for you.
there's someone who has tasted the honey. And she concludes, thanks be to God and amen. Ah, so Lord, help us tonight now as we have a conversation about these parables. Help us to be uh, men and women who consider um, in our joy have we seen that you are worth more not just than anything, but worth more than everything, including the costly things you may ask us to let go of. But Lord, it's the second half of uh, only the selling enables the possession. And Lord, what are you, <clears throat> what are you calling us uh, to release and let go? Believing that what you intend for us is our deepest happiness. And that you're only calling us because your way and your will is infinitely better. Lord, make us wise investors. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.